From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official health care provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. After ascending into the top five following their tremendous performance in Portland, it's been a difficult week for the men's basketball squad with surprising home losses to FSU and Loyola Chicago. On the flip side, things are going quite smoothly for volleyball as they cruise through the opening weekend of the NCAA tournament and are preparing to host the Sweet 16. On today's show, we'll delve into both of those stories and more in a roundtable discussion with FloridaGators.com senior writers Chris Harry and Scott Carter. Also, we'll hear from one of the seniors fueling the Gators' run in libero Caroline Canope. But first, we wanted to get the lay of the land across Gator Nation in a chat with Chris and Scott because it's been a very busy week. On top of basketball and volleyball, there's also been a big addition to Dan Mullen's coaching staff and a significant honor given to Steve Spurrier. We'll get to all of that in due time, but to get us started, we asked Chris the question that so many Gator fans are wondering at the moment. What has caused Mike White's team so much trouble this week in Gainesville? That's kind of an open-ended question, and it's funny because that same question was uh, put to Jalen Hudson, Adam, uh, after the game. His summation was one to the fact that he said, this is as low as we can get. We have to change everything. It's not one thing. It's a lot of things, and it's on us completely. We're not ready to play. We don't start the game ready to play. We don't finish the game. We don't hit shots, and we're not guarding. Guards aren't guarding. Bigs aren't guarding. No one is doing anything. That's a quote. Hmm. Okay, so in the bigger picture answer, I mean, he went on to say, and Mike, I want to say, you know, you got you to gotta start somewhere, which is starting with the basics. But something's happening with this team, and opponents are figuring it out. They're not a very good at all team defending in the low post. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, um, I wrote a story about this last week and Mike White made a point. He goes, uh, the best offensive big on the other team is having like career or, or season best games against the Gators, including a division two team, Tampa in the exhibition season. A guy, uh, hung 22 and 12 on, um, wow. uh, on Wednesday night. Uh, Loyola, uh, trotted out a freshman, a six nine guy, not particularly athletic, but kind of skilled and a big body kind of guy. Cameron Croutway came into the game averaging seven points and six rebounds. He was six of 10 from the floor, had 14 points, eight rebounds, and a couple really big low post moves or a stick back here and there when Florida was trying to make their comeback in the, in the second half of that game uh, against Loyola. And something, something has to happen. You can't keep trotting out uh, numbers like 52% from the floor for a team like Loyola Chicago. They were 6 of 12 from the three-point range. Now, I haven't started talking about offense yet, but that's because Mike White's talking about defense. And on a team that relies so much on scoring and relies so much on the three-point shot, if they're not making those shots, they have to be able to defend. And right now, they're they're defending very, very poorly. thing about it is, Adam, they were doing that against Gonzaga. OK, Gonzaga scored 105 against them. Duke scored uh, 88 against them against Gonzaga. Florida had 111. They were and against Duke. They were they were making three point shots. Mm -hmm. You know, they uh, they came out of Oregon averaging, I think, or uh, I think it was 11 and a half, three point three pointers a game against Florida State Monday night, six for 25 from the three point line. 
against Loyola Wednesday night, 2-4-19 from mm. the three-point line. You know, I just crunched some numbers. Igor Kolachov, Jalen Hudson, Kayvon Allen. Those are your three go-to scores. Against Gonzaga, they had 35 points, I think 24 points and 23 points respectively. In the last two games, they're 22 of 70. 22 of 70 from the floor, that's 31.4%, and 5 of 33 from deep, that's 15.1%. Adam and a team that, like I said, thrives on the three ball, that's just unsustainable. doesn't matter who you're playing, whether you're playing a, a team from the Atlantic Coast Conference like the FSU was on Monday night or a team from the Missouri Valley Conference Wednesday night. I might add this is the first loss to a mid-major opponent at the O'Connell Center since Jacksonville came in here and won on December the 20th, 2010. How many of their problems can be solved by Johnny Bunu's return, or is it more complicated than that? I got to think it's more complicated than that. And first of all, uh, Johnny Bunu's probably not going to be back until late January, early February at the latest. So you're talking about probably 15 games between mm. now and then where you got to solve a problem. Uh, it's got to come from Kavarius Hayes. It has to come from Keystone. You know, right now, Florida is going to be, is going to have to play undersized because they're two best post players, Johnny Bunu and, and I say Isaiah Stokes, who hasn't played a game yet and may not play a game this season because he, he's a true freshman recovering from knee surgery last January. Those guys, I mean, Stokes may not play this year. He may redshirt. Johnny Booney, like I said, there's a lot of games between now and then, including one against Texas A&M, which has, which has the best front line in the, in the Southeastern Conference. they got to figure it out, and they have to figure it out by uh, – Mike White was talking about the guards have to do a better job of front in the post. It's not like these guys scoring in the low post or Akeem Olajuwon with these incredible moves inside or what have you. I mean, they're just some simple kind of things, whether it's a, 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 just, a, just a simple head fake. And after the game Wednesday, Mike White was very complimentary of Cameron Krautwig. But he said, but he said, you know, they showed him the film of what he does. It's not, he didn't do a whole lot. He goes, we knew and we knew and we knew and we knew. And we talked and we talked and we talked and we showed film. We showed film and we showed film on the fact he was going to extra pivot and shot fake. He did every time we jumped and he scored, you know, Hmm. so the coaches are showing them stuff and they're as they're giving them the answers to the test. They're just not rolling it out and, and, and performing on, on the court at him. And I got to say, you do this stuff against, against Florida state. Do this stuff against a team like Loyola Chicago, which let's give them some credit. They're nine and one now. They're a decent team from the Missouri Valley Conference, but they're playing Cincinnati in Newark, New Jersey on, on Saturday night at six o'clock. And, uh, that's a really good basketball team, a really physical basketball team with a reputation for physicality that certainly precedes them. And, uh, to just be able to roll out of bed tomorrow and think things are going to be different when the Gators get on their charter flight to New Jersey is kind of unrealistic. But uh, something has to change with these guys, and it has to it has to come from inside, and it has to come. And I'm not talking about inside the paint. I'm talking about inside their heart and inside their head, and just start to figure out a way to do things collectively, and just and just say, you know, we're going to have to. Right now, it's funny when you think about it, Adam. It's just team has scored 100 points in four of the first five games. They have to all of a sudden be overachievers now hmm. because uh, the blueprint on them is let's let's harass Chioza. Let's close out on their shooters. And, and we probably have these guys solved. Um, the, the difference in the first few games is when some of those opponents and again, we're talking about Gardner Webb and Stanford and some of those some of those other games. Hmm. Uh, they were closing out the shooters and the Gators were making the shots. They're just not making them right now. 
moving things back over to football, I know there's a lot of people wondering what's the latest with Dan Mullen, his staff coming together. They're out in the road recruiting. We can't talk about the recruits that they're going to see, but what we can talk about, Scott, is some of the guys who are helping him try and wrangle them, including a new defensive coordinator that was announced late last week. Yeah, you know, uh, Mullen hired Todd Grantham from uh, Mississippi State, who spent a season there with them, really turned around that defense. Uh, They went from 110th in the country to 10th. Uh, so you can tell he had a big impact in his one season there. And, uh, you know, Florida fans probably remember him from his time at Georgia uh, earlier this decade. That choke signed to Chaz Henry uh, in that 2010 game when the Gators won in overtime. Henry made the kick. Uh, but it was a it was a news item for a little while there in the blogosphere. But, uh, you know, Grantham uh, did some good things at Georgia, went from there and joined Bobby Petrino up at Louisville. Then, uh, like I said, he joined Mullen at uh, Mississippi State for one season. Now he's at Florida. This is a guy who has a lot of experience uh, as a defensive coordinator. Been in the NFL for several seasons with the Cowboys, the Browns, uh, started his career with the Colts. Uh, so, you know, he's he's got experience at the NFL level, the college level. Uh, this is his third SEC school after Georgia, Mississippi State. So, obviously, scheme-wise, it's going to be a little different, more of a 3-4 guy if you look at his history. Uh, not sure what he's going to do there uh, yet at Florida, but, you know, if that is the case, they do end up running the 3-4. That'll be a, a different look for the Gators. We haven't seen that in quite a while. Uh, but, again, he's also known as a high-quality recruiter. You mentioned, Adam, right now what's Dan Mullen up to, and that's exactly what he's up to, really. He's only been in town, I think, for a day or two since he got the job. He's been on the road trying to, you know, keep some recruits, they're also trying to reach out to some guys that they had evaluated. Obviously, anytime you have a new coach, he's going to look at evaluation of recruits different than the previous staff. And I think you're going to see some of that with this Florida class in the end. Uh, you're going to see some new faces and some new players that maybe haven't been there uh, on Florida's board. But uh, that's what he's up to. That's what Grantham's up to and his other assistants. And, uh, you know, they're trying to close fast until that uh, early national signing period later this month. You know, the other thing about Grantham, too, and it's sort of evidenced by the, the choke gesture you talked about back in 2010, uh, he, he's a very fiery guy, and that's a, you know, an interesting personality trait. It's very different from what Florida's had under Randy Shannon recently. I mean, he's a guy who's going to get after it and certainly rallies the players in, in a way that's uh, unique. Yeah, you don't have to really guess too much what he's thinking on the sideline. He's an <laughs> emotional guy, feeds off just the energy of the game. I think the players feed off his energy. Uh, probably a little bit more like uh, we've seen here in the past with Will Muschamp's staff. They uh, led that way. Again, he's you know he's got a proven track record, has produced results. Uh, and anytime you know he's coming in here to a defense that. You know, we saw a drop-off there last year, Adam, which I think was expected in some ways after losing all the talent after the 16th season. But it's still defense, I think, to finish in the 50s nationally. Uh, a lot of young players in that secondary that he can build around. Obviously, going to have to uh, find some solutions at linebacker. If he's going to run a 3-4, you know, your linebackers, uh, that's a key. I mean, they got to be guys who are flexible, versatile, athletic, can cover a lot of ground on the field. And he's got, you know, some some talent up front to work with with C.C. Jefferson and Taven Bryant if those guys come back. If they don't, you'll look at guys like Jabari Zaniga and uh, Antonius Clayton, just some of the younger guys who maybe we haven't seen as much. But, again, it's going to be uh, interesting just to see how he puts his stamp on the defense once spring ball starts. 
we're talking a bit about the, the future of Florida football and coaches going forward. Let's talk about a coach from the past. I think people still remember him. His name is Steve Spurrier. Uh, he received a very, very special honor this week that Chris had a chance to see firsthand <laughs> up in New York. So, Chris, tell us about your trip to the Big Apple and the, uh, the huge banquet that Steve Spurrier got recognized at. Yeah, well, I was fortunate enough, Adam, to be on the guest list for uh, of the Spurrier family for the party on the eve of his induction into the College Football Hall of Fame. Now, if that sounds redundant for longtime Gator fans, it's because it's the second time he's going in the College Football Hall of Fame. He went in as a player in 1986, and by going in as a coach in 2017, he's just the fourth person in college football history to be inducted twice as a player and a coach. And Obviously, that's quite a honor. He joins a very short list of Amos Alonzo Stagg, uh, Bobby Dodd, and Wyatt Bowden. Interestingly, uh, Spurrier actually had uh, some kind of, uh, you know, brushed pass over the course of his life in his younger days with two of those guys. Uh, Bobby Dodd recruited him a little bit to Georgia Tech. Uh, Wyatt Bowden was the coach of Tennessee when Spurrier's uh, uh, high school career was just starting to take off. Um, he wasn't alive. I don't think. I think Amos Alonzo Stagg actually died in the 70s at the age of 102, I believe. So wow. I don't know if they ever met. Um, <laughs> but Amos Alonzo Stagg was considered the father of such things as just about every trick play, be it Statue of Liberty, hidden ball trick, these kind of all things that Steve Spurrier embraced as a coach. Um, but the event was in New York City. About 250 people came. Great reception. There was a Scott Strickland had the opening remarks, gave way to Danny Werfel, who gave way to Jeremy Foley, who gave way to Steve Spurrier. I mean, you had people there. His best quarterbacks ever were there, whether they're from Duke or from the Tampa Bay Bandits. Uh, Dabo Sweeney was there. And it's funny, uh, I was with Mike Bianchi from the Orlando Sentinel, the columnist there, and he went up to Dabo Sweeney. He said, why are you here? He goes, because he invited me. And uh, (laughs) and for as much as, as their rivalry was, you know, pretty heated, between those two guys, they certainly have a lot of respect for each other. And that was evident by Dabo Sweeney being there uh, right in the front row when Spurrier was giving his remarks alongside his wife. So uh, a great event, just a, an incredible uh, achievement for the Gator brand to have uh, this icon who's, you know, in the Hall of Fame now twice, has his name on the stadium and just quite the event, obviously. Adam. You remember when I interviewed him for Gator Tales number 91? I asked him the question, I said, is there anything at this point that people don't know about you, given how chronicled your life has been? He said, oh, I I sure hope not. But uh, was there anything new that came from this, Chris? I mean, any stories that you hadn't heard before or any uh, any new ground that was broken? I would say no, except I did find out in talking to him uh, in the run up to this thing, sitting in his office before we went last week. And I said, you know, every coach has to have a break because he was talking about Dan Mullen played at Ursinus. Somebody gave him his first break to get into coaching, to get on the ladder, to eventually get to the University of Florida. Steve Spurrier obviously had a name than, than Dan Mullen would have had going in, but his first job was from Doug Dickey, the coach of Florida. And Doug Dickey, after one year, they got fired. Uh, they went to Georgia Tech. Pepper Rogers was the coach, and he gave him a shot to be the quarterback coach at Georgia Tech. And he was telling me the story about how they actually had a, a offensive line coach who was the quote-unquote offensive coordinator, but they let Spurrier designed the plays that had to be run on third down, third down pass plays only. And Spurrier finally went to Pepper Rogers and he said, coach, he goes, these are good plays, but you got to run them on first down. Okay. And they won three of their last four games. And one of those games was against Duke, ironically. And Duke ended up being the, uh, the team that hired him to be their offensive coordinator a year later. But what I found interesting, and I didn't know this, 
one of the, the running back coach on that Georgia Tech uh, team was Norm Van Brocklin. OK, Hall of Fame quarterback, one of the greatest quarterbacks in, in NFL history. He'd been fired by the Falcons and Pepper Rogers had brought him on staff there to kind of help him out. Norm Van Brocklin told Steve, you can't go to Duke. Everyone gets fired at Duke. You got to go somewhere. Else. You got to go to Georgia. You got to go to Tennessee. You got to go somewhere because you can't coach there. He goes, well, he goes, Coach Van Brocklin. He goes, I appreciate that. He goes, ain't none of those other teams asking me to come coach for him. So he ended up going to Duke uh, as offensive coordinator. People that don't know the story, his first game against Tennessee, okay, when they played Tennessee when he was the offensive coordinator at Duke, Tennessee had a guy named Reggie White on the other team. And this was his kind of homecoming kind of game, coming back, being from Johnson City. where They went into Neyland Stadium. I think the Tennessee had to punt the ball. They were down 23-22, I think was the score, or 25-24, something like that. Duke, they downed the punt at the one-yard line. So they just got to get a first down and try to punt the ball away or something like that. They went from their own one to the Tennessee one and took knees to end the game. Maybe that was like Steve Spurrier's, like sending the message of, this is what I'm going to do to you for the rest of your life, you Tennessee Vols or what have you. <laughs> but I, that's one of my favorite stories from the Steve Spurrier time. People that don't know, he'll always say whatever coach he ever became always started at Duke. And one when he was the head coach there, it was really his start was as the offensive coordinator there with Ben Bennett, who went on to become the all-time uh, passing leader in NSA history. Obviously, that's been broken numerous times since then. But that was uh, where he really cut his teeth, got him his break to the Tampa Bay Bandits, and eventually – it's funny because Cal and LSU both had a chance to hire him as head coach and turned him down. Eventually went back there to become head coach at Duke. And away he went, uh, obviously, into uh, immortality and into the College Football Hall of Fame, not once, but twice. Yeah, no questioning Steve Spurrier and his legendary credentials. And speaking of another legendary Gator coach, one that's still active right now, Mary Wise is trying to take the Gator volleyball team back to the Final Four and a chance to do it at home this weekend, Scott. And they haven't been there since 2003. This is a really big opportunity for what some believe is Mary Wise's best team in recent history. No, Adam, you are exactly right. This is a team that uh, has talked about a national title all year. And, you know, as great of a career as Mary Weiss has had at Florida, you know she wants to eventually win that first national title. And and this is a team that's in good position to at least make a run. Uh, they're hosting a regional final for the first time since 2011. Uh, they had a pretty good go of it in the uh, opening two rounds. You know, they knocked out Alabama State a little over an hour. And then they uh, won in four sets against Miami. And now, you know, this is a regional that's going to be a, a, a test because it's the only regional of the four around the country that features uh, all uh, seeded teams. You know, you got UCLA and USC coming from the West Coast and obviously Minnesota, uh, which is a really good program. Uh, Florida plays UCLA Friday night, and if they win that, they'll have a chance to play either Minnesota or USC with the opportunity to go to the Final Four in Kansas City. And uh, you look at this team, Adam, uh, the pieces are there. I mean, uh, in the first uh, big win against uh, Miami the other night, uh, Shana Joseph was doing such a good job on the outside. Two middles, uh, Ramat Al-Hassan and Rachel Kramer, I mean, they didn't have to do a lot of extra work. And that's the kind of performance that they'll need consistently from Joseph and other people in the lineup, you know, to take some of the pressure off those middles. And uh, this is a team that's offensively is good, defensively is good. Uh, they've only lost one match all year. They came back and avenged that loss by going out to Kentucky and sweeping the Wildcats. And now here they are on the brink of a Final Four trip. But again, 
Uh, it's a very tough regional, uh, four high quality teams, and they're really wanting to use the home court advantage at uh, Exact Tech Arena O'Connell Center to their advantage. You know, they're encouraging people to turn out uh, this weekend on Friday and Saturday. These are always big events when you get to host one of these. Like I said earlier, they haven't done this since 2011. I've been with them a, a couple of these in recent years out to Texas. And I can tell you, uh, Longhorn fans packed that gym out there, and it really made a difference. Uh, one of the matches, the ref really helped the Longhorns out. <laughs> yeah. We all remember that yeah. one. Uh, but, you know, maybe they get a call at home that they don't get out there. Who knows? You just know that being at home is an advantage they want to take advantage of. If I've used advantage enough in that one sentence. <laughs> uh, we'll see how it turns out. But again, they'd much rather be at the O-Dome than anywhere else this weekend. And uh, it's a chance for uh, this team to uh, climb up one more spot closer to that Final Four. Finally today for our PAT, uh, we'll go back to a topic we've hit a number of times. Probably the last time we're going to do it this year. But the college football playoff. Everyone was waiting on pins and needles on Sunday to find out, would it be Alabama? Would it be Ohio State? Uh, I was surprised that it was Alabama. I thought it should have been Alabama, but that they would give it to Ohio State. But sure enough, the committee really decided to buck the trend. They put two SEC teams in, one of them in Alabama that did not play for the conference title. My question for the two of you is, did they get it right? I don't think they bucked any trend because Alabama didn't win the SEC title. Ohio State didn't win the Big Ten title last year, so there was certainly precedent for that. That's true. But I think we had a conversation last week we said if, if Georgia beat Auburn and everyone else held serve, then they would just flip places with that. And I uh, obviously Wisconsin opened the door and we kind of, I don't know, had a little fun maybe at Nick Saban's expense, just the idea that he was lobbying last sure. week that he should get in. But what team is going to line up against Alabama and going to be favored except for Clemson, maybe? Mm-hmm. And can you say right now that Clemson will be favored against Alabama for sure? No. Alabama is actually favored in the game at the moment. There you go. So I would think the committee got it right. I mean, as long as you're reduced to picking four teams, uh, you got to think Alabama is one of the four best teams in the country. The the metrics and stuff may not say so relative to strength of schedule and what have you. But uh, that is a game that everyone's going to be tuned into on New Year's Day. And it'll be quite the scene, a rematch from last year or a rematch from the year before, correct? Third straight year. Yeah. Third straight year. Yeah. Terrific stuff. We'll see what Scott thinks. No, you know, I remember we did talk about this last week, and I was adamant that I would certainly think Alabama would get in over Ohio State. So I was glad, obviously, the committee was listening to our podcast. And they <laughs> <took>. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I did think that if Ohio State beat Wisconsin and Auburn lost to Georgia, you got to think that it was going to be Alabama. That's the way at least I looked at it. And I'm like, Chris, what he just said, who is going to be favored against Alabama if, if it did work out as it did? Uh, you know, sure, you can make the case, you know, well, it just it doesn't seem right that a league champion like the Big Ten champion Ohio State didn't get in. But again, we discussed this last week. I just couldn't get my head around the fact that you lose 31 points to Iowa. Sure. And I realized Wisconsin was undefeated, but that was clearly a Wisconsin's uh, toughest game of the year. They lost. Ohio State's lost a couple. One was to Oklahoma at home, which, you know, that's not a big mark against them. But, again, I think that Iowa loss is a huge mark against them. And you say, well, Alabama lost their last game of the regular season at Auburn, but Auburn lost to Georgia. Still, 
Auburn plays Alabama again this week. I mean, Alabama could easily be favored. They're going to be favored, as you guys just mentioned, against Clemson. It will not surprise me a bit if Alabama does not win the national championship or does. I mean, I, it's a toss-up. I mean, they're as good as any of those other three teams, and uh, it's going to be fun to watch out. And what this does more than anything, Adam, again, it speeds up the process to sure. at least in the team playoff soon, which this year, you know, Ohio State would have gotten in. You know what I would have liked seeing in the 18 playoff? UCF in. Oh, no question. Yeah. yeah. When you go unbeaten like that and you score points like that and go up and down the field like that, I'm sure they didn't warrant any consideration behind closed doors, but hopefully the name of the school did come up, whether it was dismissed quickly or not. But I mean, in an 18 playoff, I think that's a slam done. They would have to be in there just for novelty sake and just for, for being undefeated, for God's sakes. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, right now, there's always going to be some element of someone being left out. But I do think when you go to eight teams, obviously what you almost guarantee is all your power conference champions get in. You know, eventually that's where it's going to be. I think everybody knows that. Uh, but this year, Alabama can uh, create some more hate if they uh, actually <laughs> end up with this thing. Well, remember, Alabama also won a national title in 2011 when they did not make the SEC championship. That was what got us close. That's what... I think spurred the creation of the playoff was having two SEC teams play for the national title when Alabama shut out LSU, another situation where they hadn't won the SEC but got a national championship ring. So we don't know what the future holds in terms of the college football playoff. We do know it's a big weekend in Gator sports, volleyball, Sweet 16, hopefully an Elite Eight if things go well at home, and men's basketball. Third game in six days going up to Newark, New Jersey. So, gentlemen, thank you very much. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Adam. It's been a pleasure, Adam. A magical season for volleyball is on the verge of something truly special, with Mary Wise's team just two wins away from their first Final Four appearance since 2003. But nothing can be taken for granted at this point, and the Gators learned that the hard way last season with an early NCAA upset against FSU. With the Sweet 16 headed to Gainesville this weekend, we wanted to learn more about senior libero Caroline Canope, but began by asking what it meant for the team to survive in advance. Yeah, no, it was definitely a big thing for us. Kind of even a bigger thing for me personally. I have actually never been to the Sweet 16. I was just explaining that. And um, even when I was at Michigan, I was up 2-0 against UCLA back in my sophomore year and actually couldn't make it out. So um, it's a huge thing for a majority of our team as, you know, all of the sophomores on our team, all of the freshmen um, and myself, this is kind of a new experience, but um, it's definitely one that we're super excited to have and great Miami team that we played. But, you know, at the end of the day, we were a better team, the more dominant team. And so we are moving on to this weekend and could not be happier about it. If we can go back to the start of your story, can you tell us about your family and where you grew up? Yeah, um, I grew up in Pasadena, California, which is about 15 miles outside of Los Angeles. I grew up with a sister who was a year and a half younger than I am. Um, both my parents are actually alumnus of UCLA. <laughs> and then they went on to graduate school at UCLA. And my dad is the executive director of the Roosevelt Aquatic Center. And my mom was a librarian for a long time and now is a Title IX coordinator. Um, at Caltech in Pasadena. And so I'm born and raised there. I uh, have lived there my entire life. I've actually lived in the same house for all 21 years of my existence. <laughs> and I've kind of had, you know, the storybook, you know, great parents who were so supportive and played multiple sports and a very nice and um, 
supportive group that kind of has led to, you know, what I would say is a lot of my success. When did volleyball come in the picture for you? When did you first become interested in the sport and, and realize it was something you were good at? Well, I first became interested at 11, or I was on the 12 Rochia bow team for my club, but um, kind of one of the last sports that I actually tried to play, and I was not the best at it, or I, I wouldn't say that I would consider myself possibly a collegiate athlete until maybe my sophomore year. I know you played other sports as well. So what other sports did you play and why did volleyball really become the, the leader for you? I played t-ball, softball, basketball. Um, I golfed, played a little tennis. Hmm. I kind of honestly did them all as, as a young kid. And in high school, I played four, which was, I kind of became more focused. Um, I think the thing that I liked most about volleyball was the team aspect of it and how, you know, in basketball, you could have two players even though you have five out on the court and they could be pretty dominant Mm -hmm. Um, in volleyball. It's very difficult to have just a few players to win. I mean, we truly have to have five or six who are really consistently good to be effective. And on any given play, you know, three different players on your side of the net touch the ball. And I think that's kind of unique to sport in general. I think that volleyball has a way of including a lot more people than, than other sports. And that was kind of a huge draw for me. I feel like when most people think about volleyball, they're thinking about the people at the net. They're thinking about the kills and the highlight reels. How difficult is it to explain what a libero is to people who do not really know the game? It is very difficult to explain (laughs) what a libero is. And it's also hard to see the value in a player such as a libero. That's kind of the nature of our game right now. And it's a position that typically gets overlooked. But I think those who truly understand volleyball and get the value of uh, the first contact, you know how important that a um, a good libero is, but also a steady or a consistent libero. So how did you become a libero? How did that become your path? I actually kind of realized in the recruiting process in my freshman and sophomore year that I was not going to be, quote unquote, tall enough to hit. And so I continued to hit on the club scene, but um, I kind of realized that if I was going to go play at the next level, that I would have to be a libero. And so I continued to try and fine-tune my passing and defensive skills while still attacking overhead and in the front row, but kind of knowing that my journey was going to end eventually in the front row, that there were going to be girls who were taller, swung harder than I did. And so um, I kind of came to the conclusion that I was going to have to focus on the back row. So you started your career at Michigan and then you transferred to Florida. What were some of the factors that led you to make that move, and why was Florida the right place for you? I would say that at Michigan, it was just time to go my separate way with that program, and there were a lot of factors that led me to Florida, to be completely honest. One, I thought that I had the best chance of winning a national championship here, but I also felt that it was kind of a great stepping-off point for what I want to do post-graduation and being under Mary Wise and wanting to be a head coach one day, obviously this made a lot of sense. She is a trailblazer in this world, especially for women in the volleyball community. And so I um, definitely wanted to learn under her and be as close as possible to the action with her. I also knew Carly and Ramat from an experience with the women's junior national team that took place over the summer of 2015 where we went to Europe and so I had a great relationship with both of them and that was also a huge factor in me actually coming down to Florida instead of going home to UCLA or going up to Washington. 
When speaking of Carly Snyder, I know that that's a big part of your story at Florida is your relationship with her. Can you talk about how far back the two of you go and, and the way that that relationship has evolved? Yeah, we go back pretty far, actually. Um, we were both freshmen at the University of Michigan's volleyball camp. And Carly was just continuing to talk about Florida and how great the nutritionist was and how beautiful it is down in Florida. And I actually looked at her and I was like, you know what, Carly, if you don't want to be here, go to Florida's volleyball camp. <laughs> and she ended up going to Florida and committed. And I was like, oh my gosh, I am just not a fan of her at all. Little did she know that I wasn't um, a fan of her. We ended up being on this junior national team together. And I go, mom, oh my gosh, if I am roomed with that girl, Carly Snyder, I am not going. <laughs> Ends up, we roomed the entire time together. And, you know, that was fate bringing us together because we were in a room for 15 minutes together before I knew she was going to be somebody who was going to impact my life for a long, long time, um, even after volleyball was done. So we became really good friends in contact, even throughout my sophomore year at Michigan. Um, and we kept in contact that entire time and, you know, would exchange stories about our programs and would talk and just really enjoy college and talk about our experiences. And then um, the whole transfer happened, and I found myself here, and it has just been a blessing to get to continue that relationship with Carly, but be a part of an unbelievable program that I'm so excited to rep. She's one of the many players who talks about what a great teammate that you are, that you're the ultimate teammate. I know it's hard to maybe answer this question about yourself, but what do you think makes you such an effective teammate? Let's just say this is something that I've been working on for a long time now that I haven't always been a great teammate. And, um, you know, I think I'm still in the process of fine tuning that and, and getting better. But I think what makes me a good teammate is how much I truly care. Like, I am a very motiva- motivated person. I'm very competitive. And quite often that, you know, can be taken in the wrong light. But I think most people, and people who truly know me know that I care to the nth degree. And that is why I become so competitive. And that is why I want greatness for all of my teammates, that I want them to succeed. And I want them to be the best versions of themselves every day in practice, um, in all matches. And then, you know, as a year cumulatively, that that's what I want. Um, and so I think that when you ask people about me, I think that the first thing they would say is she's competitive and she cares. If people are looking for you on the court, they can just look for the bandana and they'll probably find you. Can you tell us how the bandana became your trademark? Absolutely. So I was um, a a freshman in high school and I I really wanted to be different. I kept trying to think of ways that I could be different and stand out. And so I asked my parents for two different colored shoes and they said, absolutely not. (laughs) And then two different colored socks. And that was yet another no. And so fine. I was like, you know what? I'm going to wear a bandana. And I started wearing it and it has kind of turned into my thing, as you can say. And now it's kind of fun to go back home to my club and see some girls wearing bandanas or, you know, look out in the crowd at games or see people down on the court after with bandanas. It's kind of nice to know that, you know, there are some people who maybe think that the bandana has special powers, which I cannot smell. But, you know, I had this one girl and she told me, she goes, oh my gosh, I went to this, my game and I wore a bandana and he still lost. I'm like, oh my gosh, well, how did that happen? Um, no, it doesn't have any special powers, but it does kind of define me and my journey in this entire thing and constantly wanting to be different in some way. Off the court, I know volleyball takes up a, a lot of your time, but when you do have a little bit of an opportunity to step away from the game, what are some of your favorite things to do? 
Um, I really like hanging out with friends and I enjoy like going to movies or going to the beach, stuff like that. Favorite movies? Have any that, that immediately come to mind? Um, the Holiday is one of my favorite movies mm. and The Parent Trap. The Holiday is on every day of the week from now until the end of the year. So I think you're, you're in yeah, luck there. Yeah, it, it is. It is. Cameron Diaz is unbelievable. <laughs> and I'm a huge fan. Of the, other, the other movie that I love that people probably wouldn't guess about me is actually Ratatouille. It's like one of my mm. favorite movies. And I know like almost everyone loves that. But that's just kind of the kid at heart in me. It's a, it's a Pixar gem that most people don't talk about. Like it is. Yeah. It is. So we've talked about some of your, your future aspirations, and that is obviously to coach. So do you know what that path looks like yet after you're done with college, and how soon can you jump into it? Yeah, there's a, there's a few things that um, I'm kind of looking at possibly doing after this is all said and done, um, and one of them is possibly playing overseas, but a lot of that is dependent on how successful we are this year in the tournament especially as a libero trying to play overseas. Then another thing that I would possibly like to do is go and get a graduate degree and get my MBA while coaching and having school paid for that way. That would be having an MBA today is really important, having multiple degrees, especially like coaching. I eventually want to be an athletic director after I coach. And so that's kind of how I want to get to it is, you know, through coaching, there's two ways to get to being an athletic director. One's kind of through being a lawyer and law, and then the other is through coaching. And so you know, how quickly can I start my coaching? I don't know. I'm actually going to start it with Ocala Power over this club season. Um, and I'm really excited about helping coach their 18 ones. But I don't know how quickly that starts for me at the collegiate level. Sooner rather than later, maybe. Mm-hmm. I'd love to play for as long as I could. You know, it's so hard to get back into volleyball once sure. you've kind of been out of it for a little bit. So I'd love to play as long as I could. But how realistic is that? You know, I'm not sure. I think there's a lot of questions that I have to answer with my family when I go home this break. Well, before you do that, there's obviously, hopefully, a lot of volleyball still to play. And that brings us to this weekend. It was interesting hearing from Mary last week saying that she has her doubts whether or not it's a good idea to have the Sweet 16 at campus sites. But I'm sure you guys aren't complaining about it. So given that you get to be at home, how big of an advantage is that going to be playing in Exact Tech Arena? Yeah, I think it's going to be a huge advantage for us. And I think that we've earned that advantage, obviously. Um, the top four seeds get to host, and that's kind of the beauty of ending the season as a top four seed. Um, and that's something that we've worked to this entire year. You know, you talked about our loss to Florida State last year, and this entire year has been avenging that loss, but also maximizing the performance of this team when it matters most. Um, and I think that this is a huge opportunity for us. It is a really big opportunity. And we are beyond excited to have it here with the Gator fans behind us and hopefully, you know, make a run at a national championship and make it to next weekend. It's one game at a time. We have one game versus UCLA on Friday. And if we win that, then we'll have one on Saturday, you know, versus a really good Minnesota team or a really good University of Southern California team. So we're taking this one match at a time, working extremely hard in practice to just get a little bit better each day. And that's kind of our mantra. You know, we're not looking forward to the final four. We're not looking forward to a national championship. We're taking this one game at a time. So we have one against UCLA in front of us on Friday. Final thing for you, you mentioned earlier some of your family ties to UCLA. Uh, how ironic is that? How much has that come up in the, the time since you found out you were playing the Bruins? This is the second time in, in my career, and I think the second time in general where my family has not been rooting for UCLA. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, it's so funny. I was kind of brought up in 
our family group chat between that entire side of the family. And someone goes, oh my gosh, not chips for the Bruins. What is this? But mm-hmm. my entire family is so happy for me and for our team and, you know, the success that we've had this year. And we're just trying to continue that. I think that it's ironic that we're playing UCLA and it's funny and it's great. And, you know, but I, I think that my family and my parents have no doubt and no question who they're cheering for on Friday night here. Yeah, I would say it's a pretty safe assumption. So uh, hopefully, yeah. <laughs> hopefully uh, they get their wish and you guys do advance past the Bruins. And certainly we wish you a lot of luck and uh, we thank you for spending some time talking to us. Well, thank you so much. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Make sure to support volleyball this Friday and Saturday at Exact Tech Arena. And if you can't be there, you can watch the games on the ESPN family of networks. We'll be back next Thursday with an all-new episode, so don't miss it. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you at Exact Tech Arena.